another episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, sponsored by the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana, where each week we are exploring a different facet of one of the largest nearly intact temperate zone ecosystems on Earth. Your hosts this week are myself, Eden Wandra, and Jess Smallwood. Today we're going to be talking about ferruginous hawks, or fihaws, as you're going to be hearing them referred to, which is some cool new lingo I learned. Um, if you haven't heard about this species before, you're not alone. I never heard about them until I actually met our guest that's on today several years ago and she was excited about them back then. She's still excited about them now so she's the perfect person to be talking about them. She's a wildlife biologist who's been uh, specializing in the species of hawks for several years and here we go. I'll, I'll let her introduce herself. My name is Ellis Julin. I recently finished my master's from Utah State University in ecology, and I did my thesis work on uh, factors influencing health and survival of ferruginous hawk nestlings. So I looked at parasite loads of nestlings, and then I also looked at the bioaccumulation of lead in nestlings' blood. And I compared nestlings from areas across Utah, Idaho, and Wyoming with varying use, uh, varying levels of recreational hunting to look at how proximity to recreational shooting, sorry, recreational shooting, not recreational hunting, those are different. Mm-hmm. Looking at how proximity to recreational shooting affected um, blood lead levels. And then for my parasite work, I was kind of creating an initial baseline understanding of what parasite loads look like in these birds. It's largely understudied for FIHAs. And then I also um, looked at how long-term nest reuse affects parasite loads because it's been documented to kind of cause fluctuations in parasite loads if nests are reused over a long period of time. And typically, ferruginous hawks don't use the same nest for years and years and years on end. They'll move nests within a territory. But when we have these areas with artificial nesting structures that have been put up as mitigation for anthropogenic disturbances, these birds will reuse those nest sites for 10, even as many as 15 years. And so I was trying to get an understanding of how that affected parasite loads as well. Talking about my findings too. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We can dive into more of the details of that project later. So many levels to it. That sounds so cool. Before we do that, because I know when we have people come here to the sanctuary, a lot of them have never heard of a ferruginous hawk before. Could you quickly give us um, a little description of what a ferruginous hawk is like? A little bit about their life history. You know, what's what's unique about them? Yeah. What areas do they live in? That kind of thing, so people are, can picture them. Yeah. And before I forget, I should just backpedal for half a second and say I now work as the state house reporter for Yellowstone Public Radio. So I cover state politics in Montana. So I just did like a big old 180 from from birds to politicians. And it's a fun and exciting and terrifying change. Yeah, it's very interesting to be kind of on the policy side of things now. Um, But yeah, so ferruginous hawks are the largest of the budios, so the soaring hawks in North America. I always say they're bigger than a red-tailed hawk, smaller than an eagle. And they're really known for their bright yellow gapes. I know a lot of birders that call them the smiley guys because they have these super yellow beaks and their gapes stretch back really far. So they kind of look like they're always grinning. And they have their rufous colored or ferruginous colored legs. They're actually one of two hawk species that have fully feathered legs. So they're feathered all the way down mm-hmm. to their feet. It's kind of interesting. And they have those kind of russet reddish colored legs with a really white breast in the typical plumage. Of course, you do see dark morphs, light morphs that kind of vary within that, but that's, that's what they look like. And do you want like basic ecology stuff? Um, well, we did actually have a question. It was pretty much just like dark morphs. What's the deal with dark morphs? Yeah, that's a good question. We've, we've seen pictures of the ones that you've worked with that are dark morphs. We have a dark morph red tail hawk, but is there any, is there any kind of advantage to having that? Or is it just like, eh, I just look like this and this is how I am. Yeah. So there's kind of debate. Um, there's some folks like Neil Paprocki, uh, I don't know if you guys, do you have a rough legged hawk? No, we don't. Okay. If you ever do, you should talk to Neil because he's like okay. the guy for rough legged hawks. He's out of Boise State. We started at Hawk Watch. He's a cool guy. He's like an insane birder. Um, but he's doing some stuff looking at like different molt patterns and in, in rough leggeds. And he's kind of done some stuff about just like the weird feathering that we see. And so I don't know specifically 
anything about like evolutionary advantages or adaptations for light morph versus dark morph. I'm, I mean, just from like a basic climate change standpoint, I always worry that the dark morph birds are hotter because they're mm-hmm. so much darker than the bird than their natural plumage would be. Um, but yeah, there's nothing that's been like documented in in fijas about whether or not the dark morph is kind of just probably like a phenotypic fluke or just a variation that we naturally see. It's believed to be recessive, but um, anecdotally and like you know, emphasis on the anecdotal, my sites in Wyoming that I um, sampled from for my thesis work had an overwhelming like majority of dark morph birds. And so most nests would have at least one dark morph chick and some nests had like both parents were dark morphs or at least one parent was a dark morph. But for all of my nests in Utah, I only ever had like one a season that would have a dark morph adult, like one dark morph adult, and the chicks would all be light. And so the area in Wyoming was kind of unusual. In Idaho, same thing. Like maybe you'll see one dark morph adult, but you'll never really see dark morph chicks. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it was about that area in Wyoming, but if I had, you know, all the time and resources and funding in the world to just like look into that, it'd be really interesting to see. Mm -hmm. And I have a picture. I had a piece get published in High Country News about my work a piece I, I wrote um and I have this really cool picture of a light morph and a dark morph chick like standing next to each other yeah we we've saw seen that, that one yeah. yeah it's a really cool picture because you don't usually see that kind of variation in nestlings and then just have them like right next to each other where you can really compare them I just love that photo yeah. so perfectly posed doing everything right yeah exactly like both standing without looking like they're gonna fall out of the nest or like <laughs> me or whatever yeah <laughs> they so don't the I don't the area they are found is is Utah in Wyoming and Idaho um no they're pretty they've got a pretty expansive range so you find them across any sort of like prairie grassland sagebrush step so their breeding range extends all the way north into Canada there's been a ton of stuff out of Alberta about them and then kind of as far west as like eastern Washington and Oregon um, you'll see them as far south as Nevada and Utah, and then they extend into Montana, North and South Dakota, and um, a little bit of Nebraska as well. So they're kind of in that inner, like northern chunk of the Intermountain West. And then in the winter, you'll see them further south. So like New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, um, Kansas, Oklahoma, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, during the breeding season, they're kind of up in this neck of the woods. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, so what did a typical field day look like for you? How did you collect this data? Yeah. Um, so doing your master's in the midst of COVID pandemics, really exciting. <laughs> so all my plans kind of flew out the window for, I did a pilot season and then I did two like full field seasons. Mm-hmm. And my first, when, when did you start studying? I, so I started working in the Uinta Basin the summer of 2000, was that 2018? Yeah, 2018. I worked as an intern or like a seasonal hire for the Bureau of Land Management, just doing raptor nest surveys. So like surveying the whole kind of swath of BLM land in the Vernal Field Office Mm -hmm. region for all the birds of prey that nest there. So golden eagles, kestrels, prairie and peregrine falcons, Ferruginous hawks, Swainson's hawks, like the whole gamut. And then I kind of got to know some of the biologists out there, not interested in Ferruginous stuff. I started asking some questions just like, hey, do we know this about them or do we know this about them? And the BLM biologist out there, Natasha Haddon, who's still kind of one of my best mentors to this day, was like, we don't know those things, but we have funding to give you to like, go find those out as a grad student. And I was like, okay, great. That sounds awesome. So then I came back and I led the Raptor nest monitoring crew for the Bureau of Land Management as their kind of crew lead while working as a seasonal for the Division of Wildlife Resources. So while doing my thesis work, collecting all this data on Ferruginous hawks, I also was um, working under the sensitive species biologist, studying all kind of threatened and endangered species out in that region. So my field season looked like a lot of juggling. Um, and then during during breeding season, kind of at the peak of 
they're the height of breeding season. The craziest time of the year for me was banding and banding could happen anywhere from the last couple of weeks of May into like the last couple of weeks of June. So usually during that time period, it was kind of known by like all my friends and family that I would just disappear. You wouldn't hear from me. Uh, I have a Toyota 4Runner that I lived out of and traveled between Utah, Idaho and Wyoming um, to get my samples. And then I had a really awesome collaborator from Nevada who actually took samples for me. So I didn't have to try to get to Nevada as well. But my first big field season in 2020, um, my partner, Matt was my de facto tech because I had to let my whole field, we had to cancel field season because of COVID stuff. We couldn't all be in trucks together, this or that. So he and I packed up all of our stuff. We dropped the dogs off at my parents and like lived out of the forerunner for almost a month banding nestlings. So all over, yeah, all over those three states and seasonality is a little bit different. So like in Idaho, uh, the breeding season starts a little bit earlier because the snow melts a little earlier. So everything just is like a couple weeks before Utah and Wyoming can be later than that. It all really depends on like when the snow melt happens or what your late season storms look like. But a typical field day when I'm banding birds would be like getting up right um, as the sun rises, trying to get out to the nests. Nestlings have a pretty low thermal threshold for stress. So they start to get really, really stressed if you get to temperatures over about 90 degrees. So you really need to try and beat the heat, which last summer was super hard. Most days were about 103 degrees. So my banding had to happen between like 4.30 and 7.30 in the morning. So it was like frantic, get out to the nest before it's like, well, while it's just barely light out, but you don't want to get there while it's still dark and stress out the adults. And then you wait for the adults to kind of fledge off the nests, which they typically do. And they'll fly at you and they'll call at you. And then you'll kind of get your ladder out, or I also would climb um, telephone pole nests. Like if you've ever seen an osprey platform, I had a really cool arborist teach me how to climb those poles, like uh, adopting methods that they use to climb palm trees in like tropical areas. Mm -hmm. Cause it's like that, that long trunk. And then you have like the kind of crown of palm fronds at the top, Mm -hmm. which is like the platform that you have to get up and around to get into the nest. So climbing the platform or for the lovely nests in Idaho, they're like on platforms that are six feet tall, just like backing up the truck to the back of the platform, just standing in the truck bed or just leaning a ladder on it, climbing in, grabbing nestlings. And then each nestling, I had a friend of mine who made um, these really cute baby blankets that had like little hoods on them. So we could cover their eyes and wrap them up in the blanket for processing. So they're like, you want to cover their eyes so that they can't see you and it calms, it calms them down and it prevents them from being able to see you to foot you. Cause that's how um, birds of prey hunt and will, and the nestlings will kind of attack you that way, but they don't have like a whole lot of dexterity at this stage of life. So if they do get a foot in you, it's like really hard for them to let go. Like they don't really know how, so they'll just kind of like kick out and like grab you and then just you'll stare at them and they'll stare at you. And it's like, <laughs> well, um, <laughs> yeah. And so I had like, I can send you guys photos. I did like all sorts of different things to like figure out the best way to get nestlings in and out of the nest safely. But sometimes like taking off my baseball cap and like sticking it over a nestlings head, they'll stand up and spread out their wings and kind of look at you and you get into the nest. And if you can cover their heads, they'll just sit back down and really calmly wait and you can grab them and process them and handle them. So I would take blood samples and then um, dust ruffle nestlings with a pyrethrin powder, which is like what you use for taking fleas off of dogs. It's like veterinary grade pyrethrin powder with a blush brush, like a makeup brush, a little bit of that. And I would actually brush it into their feathers, giving them like a modified dust bath, killing any bugs that were living on the birds. Brush that all out into a plastic tub, rinse the tub with alcohol to store the samples of insects in and then we would fit them with metal leg bands from the USGS uh, bird banding laboratory. So that's a federal database that all banded birds go into. And I'm extensively permitted to be doing all of this work through the bird banding laboratory. It's important to note that I have state well and try to do this on your own. Yeah. Do not do this on your own. I have, it that way. <laughs> yeah. Don't mess with migratory birds. It's a felony. 
Absolutely. So everyone keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, I would, I had state, federal and uh, university institutional permits to uh, ensure that my work was scientifically sound and causing the least amount of harm and stress to the birds. So yeah, collect all my samples. And really my goal was to reduce the amount of time that the nestlings were out of the nest. So doing it as efficiently and effectively as I possibly could and um, making sure that we're getting nestlings in and out of the nest and process within about 20 to 40 minutes was kind of the goal. Uh, if I had to climb into the nest, you can add like, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, depending on how tall that pole was and how my climbing skills work. They got better as the summer went on. But yeah, that's, that's about what it would look like. And then really just like frantically packing up the truck, moving to the next site, watching the weather, a um, lot of sleepless nights, watching weather forecasts just to make sure that there wasn't any possibility of it getting too hot. And if it was too hot, then we just called it and would hang out in the stage for the day and uh, wait until cooler weather came through. So that sounds like an awesome adventure. Were there any other particular days that will just always stay with you and stand out? Oh gosh. I mean, every day that I got to climb into a nest, I just felt so incredibly grateful. My acknowledgement sections of my thesis opens with like this big thank you to the birds for letting me pester them and bother them in the name of science. And um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always felt really honored to to get to do what I did and be part of that. Um, there were a few times where I got to take out like some school groups at Boise State. They do like NSF um, summer research experiences for undergrads. So we got to bring out young undergrads into the field and kind of show them what it looks like in the day, the, a day in the life of a wildlife biologist, which is like normally not as fun or glamorous as it is when you're banding like let's keep in mind there's way more days where I'm just hot sitting out on a hill watching a nest for like two hours right. getting sunburned getting bitten by whatever mm -hmm. so you know we don't need to overly glamorize it but those days were really cool to get to bring people out and kind of talk them through the process and what we do and what we're all about um so that was I always loved that and then definitely I think you know getting to a point where it was the whole process kind of ran like a really well-oiled machine <laughs> was a really cool feeling of just like we had almost this assembly line set up on the bed of the truck of like, okay, this, like I go into the nest, I get the bird, I wrap the bird in a blanket or I put it in a can. I had giant hominy cans I like duct taped together. The canning method is like pretty common for raptors because you can stick them, you can slide them into these basically tubes and they're like nice and self-contained and safe. <laughs> and um, yeah, grabbing grabbing a bird, throwing it in a can, well, no, placing it into a can. Uh, and then I had the whole bed of the truck set up. So it's like, this is the spot where they're getting the band on them. This is the spot where they're getting their blood drawn. This is the bin where they're getting dust ruffled for parasites and just kind of that whole process. And um, yeah, I mean, just the things that you see while you're out there, I got to see baby pronghorn that had just been born um, near the nest as I'm driving around so many different birds of prey species in all of these different areas camping out under the stars is the only person alone in in a big old sagebrush sea um yeah i mean it was awesome i i loved it but it the i think the the coolest thing of all was knowing that the research i was doing was was contributing to to management decisions and informing management decisions in a meaningful way for these birds amazing yeah just amazing. Yeah, you sound. You can tell that how much you love it. Like it radiates from you. So it was. It was a fun time. It's appreciated too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you keep. You keep mentioning how hot it was, and that the birds are susceptible to this, are, are affected by the heat, and are stressed under the heat. And in your article, you talked about how um, Terry Tempest William referred to it as as climate collapse instead of climate change. And you said that felt more fitting. Why, why do you think climate collapse is more fitting? And can you maybe expand on the term for those of us and those of our listeners who aren't as familiar with that as just climate change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so climate change, climate emergency, climate collapse, there's a lot of different adjectives that we're using to describe the, the current state of the world. And I think for me, you know, I was out on this landscape for how long was I out there for? For four straight summers in a row. Yeah. And I really 
got to see firsthand what extreme drought looks like and what mega fires look like and how extreme temperatures can push an ecosystem on the brink to towards a lot more what's sort of like for kids and it kind of careening towards collapse i mean um you know in the desert there exists this terrible connotation where we'll say things are like a food desert, which implies that there's nothing out there. And the desert is a very alive and thriving ecosystem. And it's really a fallacy that we kind of view it as this like dead space, especially in Utah, like this dead space of red rocks, Mm -hmm. I think happens a lot. Um, But it is, it is an ecosystem that hangs on a very, very tenuous balance. And there's a very limited amount of rainfall that already happens. There's a very limited amount of shade of vegetation available, things like that. And so when anything happens that pushes that ecosystem off the brink, that that brink is very close by, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so when it's normally in the mid nineties, that's pretty hot. And all of these species and this system has kind of formed to be able to withstand that. But when you go from 93 to 103, that's a big difference. And I can say just being out in it, it's a huge difference. Um, I can, I'll take 93 any day, 103 makes it hard to just like drive a car, to walk around, to stand and do nothing. It's hot. It's really difficult. And last, my second summer in the area, Utah had a bunch of huge fires to the point of where Oh no, this is my first summer. Sorry, scratch that. First summer. We had massive wildfires in the area. Um, the Dollar Ridge fire, kind of an infamous fire in Utah. It it rained ash several days where we weren't supposed to be outside breathing that in. And I got to hole up in my house and hide with my dog with an air filter on. And none of the wildlife that I study gets that same luxury. And in years where there's extreme drought, you don't have as much vegetation on the landscape. You don't have as many prey species. We had a huge crash in the rabbit population one of the summers that I was out there. And then the following summer plague, uh, there's a plague outbreak in the prairie dog colonies, which is pretty common. They kind of experience these population booms and busts with with plague breaking out in a colony. But um, having that kind of coincide really closely with rabbit collapse from my first summer to my second summer, we had about a quarter of the nests that we had the summer before. So just seeing like, it doesn't take much to have it all kind of come crashing down. And that's just natural fluctuations that are happening. I mean, you add in anthropogenic climate change, not not even thinking about anthropogenic disturbances in these areas where there's extensive development for oil and natural gas drilling that's infringing on these birds' habitat, and then everything else that's kind of comes along with with the climate crisis, with these increasing temperatures, with with drought to the point of, I don't know if you've been following, there's like this argument right now, whether we even call it drought or we call it aridification, because when you're in drought for decades on end, is it really a drought anymore? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that the desert is the the harbinger of climate change in a lot of ways because it's already such an extreme landscape and it's already a really difficult landscape and you push that further into the the climate crisis as it feels and and it does start to feel like collapse um i had talked about in my high country news piece but my one of my hardest days in the field I was driving to check on nests. We had quite a few nests fail early on in season, and there's a lot of arguments about why that might happen. Human disturbance can be one. Um, Extreme weather events early on in the breeding season can cause adults to abandon the nest, or um, the clutch can fail and the adults may not decide to try again. And I had a nest that was like hanging on. One of the adults had died um, colliding with a power line and was electrocuted. And we kind of knew it was a matter of time probably until the nestling didn't survive when you only have one adult left taking care of young it's a lot of mouths to feed they're hunting double time trying to feed the chicks and then you'll also see a lot of times um, predation by golden eagles or ravens once there's not two adults around there's there's a lot of times where the nestlings are left unattended and they are kind of easy pickings Mm -hmm. and so um we had this this adult had died this windstorm came through and I was driving up to the nest, which is a pit in my stomach and, and got there and there was the nestling dead below the nest. And it was just, it was awful. I mean, it was just heart wrenching because 
those nestlings are my nestlings in the summer when I do this work and they're, those are my birds and I feel responsible for their well-being. And yet I'm so powerless to the things that threaten them. And I think that was something I had to confront a lot in the field. You don't get to sit in your air conditioned house and just read a bad article. When you're a field biologist, you're out in it. You're breathing in the smoke. You're crunching through the cheatgrass. You're watching the nestlings suffer. And it's so real and it's so in your face. And I think if everyone could stand out in a natural system and bear witness to the climate crisis in that way, we would all probably take it a little more seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was there any particular thing that you found out in the field that was surprising to you, like a factor that that led to a different chain of events, whether it was positive or a negative? Hmm. Can you be more specific? Like if you expected to see, you know, certain results like season to season, like with the with the rabbit population decrease and stuff like that, um, you know, that that's logical. It makes sense. You can be like, OK, we do kind of expect to see this kind of a change from something like that. But was there anything that you encountered that you maybe just early on in your field research career where you went out there and you were like, oh, I didn't I didn't think I was going to see that. And over time, did that lead to like some kind of a cascading effect? Hmm. It's hard to talk about cascading effects in the time span of a few years in an ecological system. Um, I mean, as a wildlife biologist, I would be remiss to say that I can make conclusive decisions about an ecosystem based on the few years of my master's work. However, I will say that uh, one of my favorite wildlife biologists who kind of I model a lot of what I did after um, a buddy of mine, Gabe, always says that we're not smart enough to understand ecosystems and we're foolish to think that we can. And I think that that's really the crux of it, right? Like I can hone in on this tiny microcosm of blood lead levels in nestlings and, and it's a huge win if I can in some way associate that with the recreational shooting that's happening. But to think that I can understand why one summer I had 10 nests in an area and the next summer I had two, there's a whole bunch of reasons that it could possibly be. And I may never really quite know exactly why, um, you know, prey species declines, you'll see your predator population. I mean, they often talk about predators as kind of ecosystem indicators, because if your predators population starts dropping off, there's a reason that's happening somewhere else in the system for sure. Um, but I think, you know, the, we had a bad coinciding of hailstorms late in the breeding season. So a lot of kind of late season nest failures, we had several adults that didn't return to an area. So one, one of the birds from the pair would return the other one didn't, who knows what happened there. They're um, these birds do mate for life. So the likelihood that they just like got bored and moved on is pretty slim. But if the adult died, nobody has any idea why necessarily. Um, Declines, like I said, with the prairie dog numbers with plague, definitely we saw a cascading effect from that, but there was also enough other stuff going on that I can't just attribute it to that. So, yeah, I mean, the biologist that I worked under at the at the division would always say he's like, you know, if you don't understand why something's happening, like wait a few more years and you can just get more confused or you can get more information. (laughs) It's anybody's guess. And he always was quick to judge people who make these like assumptions of like, oh, well, this is what's happening. And he's like, we don't know. And it just goes back to Gabe saying, like, we're not smart enough to understand ecosystems. And I think if there's anything we've learned through the climate crisis, it's that we really don't get it, (laughs) right? Like we dam rivers, we fill in lakes and then build new ones. We put streams under cities and then are shocked when it floods and destroys all infrastructure. I mean, yeah, I think... (laughs) Right. right. If anyone ever wants to be humbled, go into ecology. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So one of the things that you were mentioning was kind of that that dual dynamic where they come together for the breeding season. Of, do we understand this right? That normally the the ferruginous hawks are solitary outside of breeding. Yeah, you could. I mean, you could definitely say that they exhibit solitary behavior during the non-breeding season. Um, but you'll you will see them in groups 
um, during like the winter time, but that's really like food driven. So you can oftentimes see like big congregations of them on like pivot lines or even power poles in areas that are part of kind of their overwintering habitat because they're mostly just congregating their typically fields where there's power or not power lines, um, pivot lines will have like a lot of mice or other rodents that they can eat and food is scarce in the winter. So you'll see them together in the winter, but that doesn't mean they're like flocking together or it's not for any reason other than food, but people do sometimes misconstrue that to be like, oh, there's a whole flock of fruginous hawks. It's like, no, 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 they're not starlings. No, no. (laughs) like a thing that they're doing with each other. They're just trying to eat and they'll actually kind of try to scare each other off of prey. Like if Mm -hmm. they're hanging out by a prairie dog colony, they'll kind of like stomp their feet or flap their wings or do other things to kind of try to deter each other from whatever they're hunting. And then typically golden eagles, um, you can, you can include this or not, but I think anyone who studies birds of prey that doesn't study eagles sometimes feels like the bastard stepchild of like the birds of prey world because the eagle people get all of the notoriety and like, I would say 75% of the panels at conferences and things like that. Um, and the eagles are idolized and kind of this, you know, symbol of America and everything else. And eagles are way more nefarious, I think, than like we <laughs> frame them to be. Or like in Alaska, people call them trash birds. And like, I definitely feel <laughs> that way having worked with fruginous hawks. Like golden eagles are just coming in and taking the food that my birds have worked hard to catch or they're like taking the fish from the osprey who's trying to feed its family and they're not like as noble as we want them to be i don't know they're just kind of like kind of a jerk (laughs) yeah yeah and i i can say that's like one of my good friends studies golden eagles and he loves to refer to themselves as or to refer to them as sky tigers Uh and be like oh yeah they're like apex predators tigers of the sky and it's like yeah but they're really just like working off of everybody else's right Right. (laughs) like okay yeah like you'll steal they'll steal fruginous food or they'll just like eat fruginous chicks if they're like that hungry and yeah so Mm -hmm. i don't know and (laughs) eagles in keeping with your original question eagles will congregate (laughs) in areas if you see a bunch of fihas like feeding at a prairie dog colony or hunting in an area and then the eagles will be like oh somebody's doing something over here like i'm gonna get over here and steal their food <laughs> <laughs> nice guys yeah so then so then since they made since the adults made for life how is it can you walk us through the dynamics of how they go from this mostly like off on your own living your own best life until breeding season so number one how do they find each other um, number two, do they just have a regular quote unquote hookup spot and that's where they know to go to? And then number three, if one gets there before the other, how long will they wait for their partner before they decide they've been stood up forever and moving on? Yeah. Good question. Um, okay. So I don't think I could really answer part one of your question just because I don't really know how they get together, but I'm not sure that anyone really does i'd have to dig through literature although the stage of the game i feel like i've read a lot of papers and that would come up if we knew but you know somehow some way they find one another and then they establish a territory which will be their kind of that's their zone and there is some boundary that is understood by them and the other fihas in the area is kind of their territory fihas are territorial but you don't see um like a lot of kind of aggression happening between one territory and another. They tend to be like spaced out enough that it's just, I don't think it comes up a lot. At least I've not seen it in like the early part of the season where you'll see kind of um, courtship behaviors or like copulation happening. So there's that. And they'll kind of establish this territory that'll have, oftentimes it'll be, so Ferruginous hawks can nest in trees or on the ground or on rocky substrate. And so when they establish this territory, it can be like along a cliff band and they'll move their nest from like one rocky outcropping to another between different years. And the adults always come back to that general territory. And then they they forage within a larger range kind of outside of that breeding territory. And they can actually go quite far. Um, a woman I know with Teton Raptor Center is studying their range during the, or like the, the range that they'll hunt in during the breeding season. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it's like a lot further than we thought it was um, but they'll fly around to find food but yeah so they'll establish their territory and then they'll return to that territory year after year and i have had situations um again anecdotally where 
a territory will be occupied one year, the pair will lay eggs, have a clutch, raise nestlings, fledge nestlings, peace out after the nestlings, not long after the nestlings fledge. And then um, the following year, one adult will return to the territory and just hang out there for a long time. They definitely can return at different times, especially if they're overwintering in different areas. Um, you know, who's to say like when one bird comes back versus the other one, because they kind of just go their separate ways at the end once they've fledged their chicks and taught them how to hunt. And so if you see that kind of one bird that'll come back and hang out the territory, they can hang out like well into the breeding season. Like I'll have other pairs where the female is brooding or she, you know, she's on eggs or maybe they just hatched and they're still in the next territory over that one adult just hanging out. Hmm. And so typically we assume that that means that it, the mate has died or something has happened very likely that the mate has died and the other bird doesn't know. And so they'll, they'll kind of wait it out, but then a year or two years later, you'll see a pair in that territory. And because we don't have transmitters on these birds that I'm telling these stories about, I can't verify that these are the same birds. So potentially that bird found a new mate that's younger, maybe or alive, alive, able to breed and brought that mate back to the territory or a new pair has just taken it over. And it's super common for territories that are occupied for years and years and years on end to become kind of dormant, if you will. And then a couple of years later, later, you'll see a new pair. So it's anybody's guess if, you know, the, if the pair dies out and a new pair is like, oh, hey, this looks like a nice spot. Like, this seems great. And mm-hmm. fruitless hawks are not weavers or expert engineers with nest building. Um, they don't have a lot of material to work with. They're kind of just pulling dead juniper branches, with which if you're familiar with juniper branches, they're like very gnarled and dry and not pliable whatsoever. So they're doing the best they can to build kind of a nest ish structure that ends up being really, really flat just with these like dead sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, fun fact before bison were wiped out in the West, well, in the country, uh, Frugian's hawks would line their nests with bison dung and hair, which is kind of cool. Ooh. Yeah, that's like a fun fact I really like. There's an area where I have some nests where there's like a big feral horse population yeah. and they'll line it with like horse hair and like horse dung. How interesting. Wow. Way more comfortable yeah. than juniper branches. I wonder if you would be able to look at nests in areas where there are like, you know, bison herds that are maintained and see if those local birds are like, oh yeah, my great grandmother told me that her nest was lined with this with this when she was a chick. Like yeah, let me try. <laughs> I, I do wonder about that. I mean, I certainly it was never in areas where there were bison, but I mean I'd see pronghorn poop, deer poop. How funny. There's poop. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And of course, you know, it's the desert, so everything's super dried out. People are like, oh, right. it's really gross. And it's like, mm. like, horse poop is basically the same as like a pile of dirt in the desert right. for like six hours. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so um, what was I saying? So they'll establish their territories. And yeah, and you'll see like I, a territory actually this year that was active my first summer in Utah. So 2018 and then nothing the last few years um, just was active again this year. And the biologist I used to work with texted me and he was like, Hey, this nest is active. There's a pair back here and they're like nesting. So it's always a joke in the world of like raptor nest monitoring of like, Oh, if there's no birds, I'll repeat that. There's no birds, like just wait a few years and come back and like, they'll probably have come back to it. If it's a good enough spot, another pair will probably find it after a while. So yeah, nice kind of opening in the, in the niche of nesting habitat. Yeah. So that kind of reminded me of one of my other questions. I was curious if, if the research you used to do is still going. Um, and also if I, I know we talked about, you can't make conclusions after a short period of time of studying, but were there any results that you found from your study that you, that you can share and are they still working on collecting that data? Cause it's, it's such an important project. I hope it's yeah. still happening. So the birds are still being, um, banded in all of, well, in, my Utah sites, that project is ongoing with, with documenting nests and um, productivity of nests. So how many nestlings are fledging from one year to the next, how many territories are active, things like that. And um, some of 
kind of the interesting, I guess, findings from my parasite research is that parasite loads are pretty low in these birds and they don't seem to really be affected at all if they do have a couple of feather lice or, or fleas or things like that on them. And um, that was kind of surprising and a little bit unexpected, but good news overall. And there's no variation between um, nest reuse histories. So a nest that's brand new versus a nest that's been the tad nestlings in it for the every year for 10 years, um, the parasite loads don't differ significantly between nestlings on those different types of reuse nests. So um, the kind of big take home message from that is typically, like I was saying at the beginning, when there's artificial nesting platforms that are put up, those get reused really extensively. Oftentimes one nesting platform will get put up in an area that used to have maybe 10 juniper trees or something like that. So you can kind of think there used to be this opportunity for alternate nesting where they're switching nest locations from one year to the next in the territory. And now there's the one platform. And for whatever reason, these birds do seem to preferentially select a platform when it's available to them in their territory, even if there's nesting habitat around. Although platforms do tend to be put in like degraded habitat areas as a mitigation strategy or a management technique. So, you know, you can kind of hem and haw over that as much as you'd like. But um, basically, the long-term reuse of nests tends to happen on platforms. And so I was kind of interested in seeing what that looked like as far as parasite loads. It's been documented in quite a few other bird species that nest reuse can increase parasite abundance. The nest can serve almost as like a micro refugia or like an overwintering habitat for insects that are parasitic or can, can carry parasites that are parasitic vectors. So um, that's good news. Artificial nesting structures and nest reuse doesn't affect parasite loads. And we found across, oh, I'm going to have to pull up my numbers. Across all the nests that I surveyed during the two summers of like full field seasons across all three states, none of the nestlings had blood parasites, which is super interesting and unexpected wow. for birds of prey. We see in goshawks and golden eagles, um, ha nestlings having blood parasites, um, at least some nestlings having them. So we had none, which is kind of a very, very large negative result. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, uh, any yeah. reason for that? Um, that's a great question. I'd love for someone else to continue <laughs> and figure it out because it is yeah. really like fascinating that we didn't find any. And we, I worked really closely with a avian pathologist who tests, who does this sort of stuff quite often. So we ran positive and negative controls and verified our results using the most modern kind of PCR technology to um, sequence for parasitic DNA in our blood samples and didn't get anything back. So we're pretty confident in the validity of these results, um, but nobody really knows why. So gotcha. yeah, kind, of, kind of cool. If anyone's looking to do grad degree, go bug the guys at Boise State because I'm sure they want to know. Um, so, matter of fact, that does tie into one of our questions. Oh, yeah. You know, like, so for anybody that that is looking to, um, you know, boost on the ground, help out, that kind of stuff, regardless of what level they're at, are there certain things that people can do to to directly help, whether they're, you know, like city living or they're suburbanites or even landowners? So, for instance, like, would you encourage landowners to allow or to set up these platforms if they wanted to create that kind of thing? Or is there some other call to action that you would want to get out there to get people involved and have more help? I mean, other than stop wasting copious amounts of carbon. Um, well. yeah. <laughs> yes. That's, That's a good question. Um, you know, ferruginous hawks are so sensitive to anthropogenic disturbances that you don't ever see them in urban areas. You don't see them near cities or things like that. Uh, my sites in Idaho are kind of unique because they're pretty close to Boise, but they're located on the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, which is this, if you've never been there, I highly recommend going um, during spring or fall at the onset or the peak of breeding season because you'll see every North American bird of prey, you can imagine breeding out there. It's really cool. It's like a key habitat for, um, well, a ton of birds of prey, but especially prairie falcons, like a lot of prairie falcon scrapes. But um, yeah, you don't tend to see them in like urban areas. So it's not like kestrels and nest boxes where you can have that like really tangible conservation measure. But I think, you know, being good stewards of the environment, my research in 
or looking at blood lead levels definitely showed that nestlings in close proximity to recreational shooting have detectable levels of lead in their blood. And that's from the use of lead ammunition. So if you're someone who likes to go out and target shoot, or even someone who hunts, you know, using that non-lead ammunition and being, being mindful of the impact that your activities have on the landscape. I think um, on, on a similar vein, not with ferruginous hawks necessarily, but a lot of birds of prey that nest in cliff faces can definitely be disturbed by people that are rock climbing during the breeding season. So late winter, early spring, you know, being aware of potential breeding bird activity in your area. I know throughout Moab, there's been a big push to like put up a lot of signage about like, hey, there's eagles nesting here. Don't climb this wall right now or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think just being mindful, being good, being a good steward, recreating responsibly is always really important. Um, you know, the further out you go, especially on kind of more of these rural public lands, that's where you're going to probably be overlapping with fijas if you're going to see them out in the wild. So keeping being aware of that, you know, using campsites that are already established, staying on roads that are already built and um, packing it in and packing it out. I mean, Eden can like <laughs> attest to all of these. <laughs> right, the bus, yeah. Small recreation things. But yeah, I think all of those are, are super useful. And then, you know, advocating for policies on land management policies that you believe in. Uh, Bureau land management land is, is mixed use management land. And so, there are all sorts of things happening on BLM land at any given time. There's types of recreation, there's livestock uh, grazing that can be happening, it does happen extensively. There's um, oil and natural gas extraction activities, mining activities, things like that. So, you know, letting your lawmakers know what kinds of policies you are supportive of and what matters to you and why. I think really helps humanize issues for our politicians and, and the people in these kind of positions of power making these decisions about how the land is used. The Bureau of Land Management also has open comment periods for any ongoing development or new development project. And really any sort of project that's proposed on BLM lands goes through an extensive period of public commentary, whether it's an environmental assessment or other steps along kind of the NEPA process. And so using your voice when you have the opportunity to do so to advocate for policies that you believe in, I think is, is super important and really empowering in the world of, of a changing climate where we can feel so alone or so powerless to the, the greater machinations of the world. Advocating for the things you believe in definitely um, can help you kind of feel a little bit more involved with it. And it really does work. You know, like we hear all the time about like, oh, if you don't like it, call your senators and stuff like that. And it, you know, I think because we hear it so often, if you're not directly involved, it just kind of sets up this like glass wall where you feel like, I hear you, I hear the words that you're using and I understand the meaning, but that probably doesn't really pertain to me. And it's just not true. Like you can- like like making those phone calls and writing those emails and doing everything that you just said does have a tangible direct effect. So do it, just do it. <laughs> well, and I can say too, as somebody who's worked for the BLM and then who's also been a reporter that's done stories interviewing members of uh, BLM biologists or comms people, you know, the Bureau of Land Management regional field offices are responsible for so many hundreds of thousands of acres that they can't possibly cover all that ground. And so they really rely on public comments or feedback from the public as kind of their boots on the ground, ground truthing um, sources, for lack of a better term. You know, there's this one uh, woman that I spoke to with the, the field office that I used to work for once I was a reporter interviewing her about some ongoing Uh, projects where they were accepting public comments. And she's like, we need to hear from the people who are backpacking out here, who are hiking out here. Like, what are they seeing? What are they noticing? And so you can, as someone who recreates on public lands, you know, you can really have a say in what happens on those lands and you can, you provide really valuable insights to those land managers. I mean, there's so much ground, just physically, there's so much ground to cover that they really rely on those public comments sometimes to kind of give that feedback. So yeah, big, big proponent of offering public commentary. And the websites can be confusing and hard to navigate, but you can always call the number and the person at the front desk for your regional field office is, can usually steer you in the right direction. So, yeah. I think awesome. it makes Deal. perfect sense that you went from field work to politics. I think it's a perfect combination. And you now you can speak up for these birds. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's 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 a wild kind of turn of events, but yeah, I'm I'm glad to be doing it because I definitely sometimes had that feeling, like I said in the High Country News piece, of like I'm just documenting destruction because mm -hmm. yeah. when you're just collecting data, it's hard to to take that data, give it to the people that are making management decisions, and be like, no, because of this, you need to do this. And I think that as a reporter, I'm in a different position to be able to kind of talk about, hey, this is the data that was collected. What does this actually really look like? What does this really mean? And, and putting it into non-scientific terms because scientists love nothing more than getting embroiled in jargon. And sometimes it can be really isolating for, you know, people from the ivory tower of academia to talk to people outside of that world. Yeah. You need that middle person. So can your data help with uh, determining population numbers, which can influence the listing of fruginous hawks, like for potential production? Yeah. So as far as listing goes, um, I'll probably <laughs> decline to comment on that just because ESA is such a controversial kind of topic, especially like in Montana, like it's just a story about wolves earlier. And my um, editor was like, don't say this, like, don't say yeah. that. We get all these people yeah. yelling at us. So, um, yeah, I won't say anything about ESAs. I will say that um, state agencies create things typically called wildlife action plans or some derivation of that term. And they use information collected by um, their field biologists to determine what species end up on either a sensitive species list or a species of greatest conservation need or threatened. There's a variety of kind of categories that they'll group different species into based on what their numbers seem to be doing in the state. And so the productivity numbers, the numbers that we get of nests that are active and then the number of nestlings that fledge from those nests are used in those technical reports, which then go to the state agency's kind of central office and are pulled in with all of the other reports from all of the other regional areas to make a decision of like, okay, you know, last year, and those typically will, I think wildlife action plans happen every five years in Utah. They do, I don't know for sure in Montana, but typically they happen on like a five year kind of cycle. And so it'll be like, all right, what's happened over the last five years, we were going to do X, Y, Z to try to bring fruginous populations up. Are we seeing an uptick? If so, maybe they're lower on the list of concerned or species of greatest conservation need or things like that. And so, yeah, this, this kind of data, especially just like the basic data of like, where are we seeing nests? How many nestlings are we seeing? Are these nests active from one year to the next is really important. And then additionally, I think that information from the, the uh, blood lead levels that I, or the information that I got from looking at lead in nestling blood was definitely useful for Boise State um, researchers. And this is still kind of, I just finished my thesis. So this hasn't gone to publication or anything like that yet, but I'm hoping to get something published maybe in the Journal of Wildlife Management or something along those lines that can really show very clearly, hey, these birds that are near recreational shooting have lead in their blood. And these birds that are out in the middle of nowhere next to oil and gas fields where there's no recreational shooting for obvious fire reasons, don't have any lead in their blood. And so, you know, that's a really, that's kind of your, your best case scenario. I think when you're doing wildlife research that you want to inform management decisions of like, Hey, look, this thing means this. And this thing means this, cause there's, there's nothing else that could be giving them that lead in their blood. So um, yeah, I'm hoping that that gets used to kind of maybe inform some decisions made on that, that um, habitat in Idaho. That's the Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, like I was saying, and it's a really important breeding habitat for a variety of raptor species. And so hopefully this these findings can either be expanded to look at other birds of prey on the NCA, like are we seeing lead in golden eagle nestling blood or in prairie falcons nestling blood or things like that, and then maybe change restrictions on banning lead ammunition or having seasonal, like seasonal bans during breeding season or things like that. So yeah, I mean, best case scenario, it would it would be used to kind of change how recreational shooting is managed on that landscape. Wonderful. Um, so like overall, so you're you're talking about all of this amazing research that's out there and like all of this really important, you know, very valuable information that's coming out. Where can the layperson go to to number one, find 
accurate and good information because one of the things even just doing our own research you know like there are all these different factors and they seem contradictory so like if you see that the the ferruginous hawks are listed as least concern but that and then you read in another place that their num- numbers are increasing, but then we also don't know what their population size means. It just creates this like realm of confusion. So yeah. where can people go to find more research like what you're what you guys are doing, but also maybe some clarity into the bigger picture for these guys? Yeah, so I think um, for more regionally specific information, going to your state management agency is the best resource you have. Those wildlife action plans are all available in the public domain, and I think they're fairly user-friendly. You can also go to nonprofits in the area, so I'm sure you all probably give great information about the animals at your sanctuary and what's happening with their their wild, um, what's our like for counterparts, and so... I think going to your local agencies can be really useful, your local Audubon Society, stuff like that. And then really on the larger scale, you know, I think the take home message is there's still a lot that we just don't know. Um, To understand a population as a whole, populations supersede state boundaries, they supersede national boundaries. And it's really hard, especially with migratory birds to track what's happening with them in their breeding areas, in their overwintering areas, in areas that they go but when they're too young to be breeding and they're just kind of juveniles hanging out or bachelors hanging out on the landscape and i think that if anything this just tells us how much more research there is to be done and so supporting organizations that are doing this sort of research hawk watch international does a lot of great work specifically with birds of prey they're based out of salt lake city and um, the boise state raptor research center is unparalleled in the work that they do. There's the Morley Nelson Birds of Prey National Snake River National Conservation Area, which is like way too long of a name for anything ever. But out there, there's some great partnerships. There's a a Birds of Prey partnership. There's the Peregrine Fund. I mean, if you want to do Bird of Prey stuff or want to know what's going on with Birds of Prey, just call the folks in Boise. They can tell you. Um, But yeah, I think that it's really important to also keep in mind that just because a population is listed as least concern doesn't mean that we don't need to think about it anymore. I just was talking about this in a story I did, but I mean, bird populations globally are declining and there are a whole suite of things that can be affecting that, but the amount of time that it takes or the time lag that happens between a decline and when we're actually tracking a population loss can be delayed. And so having accurate data about the size of a population or a population estimate can enable us to adequately track that population as it changes over time. And like the kind of, I guess, thing I keep circling back to, you know, the span of of one to two to even five years is pretty short in the overall span of an ecosystem or of an apex predator population that has a larger life expectancy than that. And so I think it's really important to think about what's happening on these habitats and these landscapes and these ecosystems as a whole. And what does that really look like? I mean, sagebrush step habitat is, is imperiled and is threatened and is rapidly shrinking due to urbanization and expansion we're seeing across the Intermountain West. And that's something to think about too, um, as we think about these bird populations and what they're doing. So yeah, I think that not to be like a total Debbie Downer, but just because something's listed as least concern doesn't mean that it isn't a concern. It just means there's other stuff that's far more imperiled, but I think it's still important to remember that all natural systems can be threatened in various ways by anthropogenic disturbances and being able to really understand what they look like right now and having that data that can be looked at in the future as the kind of barometer of what's happening or the the benchmark that we can look back on is really important. Wow, you're making me want to go back to field work to help out. We got to get outside. (laughs) I mean, I'm a journalist now, so what do I know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for the work you do helping the birds and sharing their stories. Thank you for coming on today. Um, We have a Ferruginous hawk here, Rouge. He's a beautiful, handsome guy. We've had him here for four years. So please come visit him and meet him sometime when you get the chance. Yeah, I know. Matt and I are saying we got to get out here. 
for we got to get out there in the fall to Yellowstone once he's done with field season. So great. Yeah, I, ho- I hope you can. You'll love it here. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Do you have any ideas about topics for future episodes or maybe questions about past episodes? You can email podcast at yellowstonewildlife.org or you can leave us a text or voicemail at area code 406-426-1210. The Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem is a production of the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana. Our hosts today are Eden Wandra and Jess Smallwood. Our theme music was written and performed by local musician Justin Satterfield and recorded by Sean Keeney. For all the incredible show notes, links, and resources Ellis shared with us today, please visit www.yellowstoneecosystem.com. If you would like to learn more about the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary or help find ways to support them, please visit YellowstoneWildlifeSanctuary.org. We hope you'll join us next time for another awesome episode of the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. 